Welcome to another episode of Frasier, the weekly show that helps educate and enlighten business owners with tried and tested advice from industry experts. Join host Kahiga Tiaga in conversation with entrepreneurs from around the world, sharing their stories and solutions to help you set up and sustain your own business operation. That's here only on Frasier. Hello, good people. Welcome once again to another episode of Meet Frasia. Just to remind everyone, Frasia is a total solution for small business owners to set up and sustain their business operations in 90 days. And part of the way we're trying to educate our entrepreneurs is by speaking to other business owners, irrespective of where they are on their journey, to share their tips, quips, and slips with regard to their own entrepreneurial journey. And so today I'm very, very pleased to welcome my good friend and a colleague, Dede Dede, a CEO of Manette Medical and mentee. Really excited to talk to him about his new company, Manette Medical Group, which is an MBE and uh, 8A certified minority small owned business. And they're focusing on medical and dental equipment in the manufacturing and distribution sort of verticals there. So really excited to have Dede on the show. Looking forward more to finding out, you know, about how the business journey is going so far. So without further ado, welcome, Dede. Thank you. We're going. You know, <laughs> that's, that's the main and most important thing. Like progress, I think we started in 2019 when we formed a company. The relationship the company's based off of was established in 2017. Obviously, COVID happened for everybody, so that was tough. Other than that, we're making slow progress, but it's better than no progress. So that's how I would define how we've been operating over the last year and a half or two. It's been very slow, but it's been um, progress. Every quarter I look up, I'm further along than I was the previous quarter. So not moving as fast as I would like, but it's definitely moving. Sure. And we're definitely going to go into what it takes to get a business off the ground, especially something that's as sophisticated as a medical equipment distribution business. But you know, you have a pretty interesting backstory. So based on what you want to share, just a little bit about where you grew up and some of your educational career. We're in the startup space. I'm uh, older than your, I would say, typical startup person. 42 this year, I'll be 43 in about six months. And I feel like I got a late start in the entrepreneur space just because my life circumstances that led up to that. You know, I grew up in, in foster care institutions and stuff like that, uh, group homes, boarding schools, all different types of ways that they take care of you when you're a ward of the state. So, you know, I spent most of my childhood in that space, all of my teenage years in that space, and I didn't really get out on my, on my own two feet until I was in like my 20s. And then by the time I did that, I had no guidance, no direction. So uh, what ended up happening was, you know, I thought... Looking at my peers around me, my immediate influence, everybody was, you know, kind of in the streets trying to make money. I got caught up in that, you know, with drugs and stuff. Ended up doing five years in prison, came home at the end of my 20s, late, late 20s, like 28. And then realized what I had saw there wasn't going to be my future, like no matter what I had to do to it to prevent that. So at first, what I thought what made a lot of sense was to uh, get a college degree and go work, you know, maybe the government or corporate or whatever what i realized was like my background didn't lend itself well to that i did well in the education space i started off at the community college did well transferred to the university of pennsylvania got a bachelor's degree there 
from there went on to get an MBA at Howard University. But when I was going through like the interviewing and trying to like slide into these corporate spaces, I realized I was a lot older than most people who were on that trajectory. And I also realized like that didn't fit who I was as a person. You know, I had worked for you, you know, when you had the law firm. And I remember working for you when I was trying to decide between law school and the MBA. And you told me, you're like, if I could do it all over, I would get the MBA. I would so get I went and got the MBA and I was like, all right, cool. I got the MBA now. You know, it's going to be whatever. And then I get the MBA and I realized like the MBA still only really provides a platform to do things that aren't well suited for my personality type and also for my background. And, you know, uh, I'm not a traditional person. I'm not really a conventional person. So the MBA really just put me in line just to fall into some corporate ladder that I wasn't really interested in. I thought I was interested in it until I spent a, like a year and a half or two in there. And I'm like, oh, man, this is not for me. <laughs> right, right. Looking right. at the cats who are my managers and supervisors, they're 10 years younger than me. They don't have any of the experience that I have. And I'm just like, this can't be life. That's what made me just think this isn't sustainable for me. So I got to figure out another way. So just a lot to unpack there. And by the way, just before I you know, get to the questions. Starting a business, unlike what the the kind of popular belief is, but starting, most entrepreneurs start their business in their 40s. And when I say the majority, I mean the overwhelming majority. And let me connect the dots on why that's the case. Because if you really think about it, especially for those who are not, you know, to the manner born, In your 20s, you barely have any subject matter expertise. In your 30s, in your career, you know, if you're living a kind of a traditional path, in your 30s is when you're beginning to assume managerial responsibility, maybe even budget responsibility, right? Right. And your network is growing to the point where if you go and start something, you can rely on that network. You you have something to leverage it against. Exactly. You know, seven, 10 years, people now are relying on your track record and what kind of favors you've provided them in the marketplace. If you really think about it, I mean, but for the brilliant Harvard and Stanford people, what kind of network does a 26-year-old really have? to be able to get into some of the rooms and to think as expansively. I think another perspective of it is to look at it like what we consider entrepreneurship is like just jumping out the window, taking a risk, starting your own thing and trying to be self-sufficient and not rely on anybody else. But I think entrepreneurship today for the people who are 10, 15 years younger than we are, even 20 years younger than we are, what entrepreneurship looks like to them is called a side hustle. You know, and then it becomes something other than a side hustle. But they're on that traditional path with everybody else. But they're the ones who are like, okay, I'm on this path, but I also have a side hustle. And that side hustle becomes their main main thing eventually if they're good enough or they're lucky enough. But I think, like, if you look at it that way, the 40-year-olds probably are the ones who are taking the biggest risks. But Mm -hmm. then the younger generation are mitigating their risk by being on a traditional path and having like a side hustle or two that they're working on along the way. Sure. And when your your side hustle overtakes your job and becomes the main hustle, it probably tracks the timing that we're same, talking about. Same, well, right? right? Yeah, right. So exactly. it, and it ends up really not being that much of a risk, right? Because, right, exactly. I mean, let's just kind of explore this for a second because I think it disabuses the notion that, you know, somehow corporate, I respect corporate and you know that I was a corporate guy, but- Right. One of the things is, so think about where you are at 35, 40 in your natural trajectory, right? You're 
kind of getting to manager level or maybe director VP level. But that's also the time where a lot of careers begin to hit whatever glass ceiling in glass, right? So you can almost look at entrepreneurship as a promotion, right? It's like, dog, exactly. I've hit my ceiling. I've got my 401k. I've paid down exactly. my student loans. I see the glass ceiling. And I've also identified, you know, a gap in the marketplace that I think I can- Exactly. Explore. Now I can become your competitor. Boom. Because you didn't give me a trajectory past that glass ceiling. That's now right. I'm going to be your competitor and That's capture right. that gap. That's right. So just another perspective. I mean, I thank you, by the way, for being- so transparent about your background and how you grew up. But what I wanted to really understand is, so how does somebody who grew up, you know, kind of deprived of the mentoring and really not having a mentor, how do you decide that education is something that you need to focus on in your 20s? So I didn't get on my educational path until my 30s. I wasn't really on that path until 31. But however, because both my parents are immigrants, my mother is from Trinidad, my father's from Nigeria. That's all they knew was really like, no matter what, you got to go to school. Like, no matter what's happening, that's like the answer to everything. Education has been big in my family for generations now. Like, we're three generations of PhDs consecutive. My grandfather, my father, both of my brothers, my mother has a master's. Like, if I could do it all over again, I don't think that would have been the path I chose. I would have tried to start what I'm doing now before, but. That was just something that just immigrant parents, specifically from Africa and Caribbean, kind of instilling you from the day you're born. is like, no matter what, you're going to college. Like, it don't matter that you went to prison. When you come home, you're going to college. All roads lead to education, right? So you, <laughs> all, all roads. You, you got to duck it all you want. Right, right. But the other trend that you have, at least, and speaking more generically, Caribbean have, but certainly Nigerians, is that spirit of entrepreneurship. So, but for the street life, did you have any examples of entrepreneurship that you saw as you were growing up or maybe in your 20s and 30s that helped you? If I look back on it, my mother was always trying to, she always had the side hustles. First of all, my mother always had three jobs. Her main primary job was as a social worker. And then in the wintertime, she worked at a homeless shelter. Mm. And then in the summertime, she worked at the uh, state park. So she always had like three jobs. But then... She always had other ideas. Like when she was working at the state park, she saw people uh, renting out canoes. After a couple of years of observing that, she went and got canoes and was like, I'm running out canoes. So she bought like 15 canoes, right? And you got to think my mom at this time was probably close to 50 or a little over 50, right? And she's not very big, but she had a suburban. She put these 15 canoes on top of her truck and took them off and went to the park and running them out. And I was like, hey, why don't you guys come help me with this? Like, it's too much work for me. Like, yo, it's the middle of the summer. I'm not about to sit outside in the park and help you wreck canoes. Like, that's not in the game plan. It's summertime. Like, I'm out. So she always had something like that. We literally just talked about the insight that your mother got as an experienced worker of a certain age that identified a market gap and took advantage. Oh, right, 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 right. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. Like, you know, so that's kind of what I mean by, you know, spending enough time. Here goes how legit her canoe business was, like. It came a time when she was after two or three years of doing this every summer that she was like, I'm too old. You guys don't want to help me. And she was able to sell her canoe business like that. The one summer she decided she wasn't going to do it. There were people in the park who had also canoe businesses like, hey, we'll buy those from you to expand our fleet. And she sold it like for a profit. Like everything my mom ever did, she ended up selling for a profit. 
like every little company she started. And that's just one example. She's always also had like a bunch of side hustles and she might not consider entrepreneurship. She just might consider it trying to feed five kids as a single mother. You know, when you go to Nigeria or you go to Trinidad or, or uh, Cameroon, where you're from, right? Anywhere on the, on the continent or even in the diaspora, you see people who, whatever they're doing, they're just trying to make it. So, you know, whether they're selling oranges on the side of the street or, you know, selling beer in a, in a restaurant or whatever, at the end of the day, people are just trying to make it and not rely on other people to be self-sufficient. Yeah. So, like, I've always had those examples. Now, talking about that fit, on paper, you're highly educated. And not on paper, you are highly educated, right? So you go from community college, you get to Penn, Ivy League, and then you go to a Howard MBA, which is, you know, top flight college overall, but top flight MBA school and then top flight HBCU. Your belief that you were not a fit in corporate, do you think that's a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of an image that you had of yourself? Or can you point to one, two, three examples where you realized this is not a fit, whether it's because of the work, whether it's because of the personality or just the environment? My first realization that trying to pursue that corporate track wasn't for me was my mother. She said, you're going to die a slow death. Your brothers, they can do that, but you're not going to be able to do that. You're going to die a slow death. Wow. She's like, you're going to go in there. You're going to be unhappy every day. You're going to be miserable and you're going to die a real slow death. She never wanted that for me. You know, no matter how much I wanted it for myself, that was never her goal for me. Like, whereas for my brothers, she had different ideas of what they could do, what success would look like for them. For me, she was like, you need to create your own path. You need to create your own freedom. You need to travel the world. This is what you're born to do. You're not born to go sit in somebody's cubicle. And she's been telling me that my whole life. But I used to think that she just didn't have faith in me. You know what I mean? I used to think like, oh, she thinks my brothers are smarter than me. She thinks they're you know, going to achieve more than me. But as I started to get closer to that realization that it wasn't for me on my own, that's when I started really understanding what my mother was saying from, from the beginning. Because she did it, but she did it because she had five kids and she didn't have a choice. Right. So she always told me, she was like, this isn't for you. Trust me. You're just going to, you're going to die a slow death. You don't have any, I have a daughter now, but at the time I didn't have any kids. She's like, you don't have any responsibilities. You don't owe this to anybody. You don't have to do that. So, at first, I didn't really appreciate the fact that what she was saying was uh, wisdom. I just thought it was like a lack of confidence in me because I was the only one in my family that ended up in that background I told you about uh, where I got caught up in the system. All my other brothers were able to stay out of that, but I got caught up at like eight or nine years old. I kind of stayed in there until I was like 21. So I just always thought that she didn't believe in me, but really she just understood who I was and what my natural kind of like free spirit is. You know, it's amazing, Dede, because the more I'm having these conversations, you know, this is about the seventh or eighth conversation I'm having. One, I'm realizing birds of a feather. <laughs> but two, it's just this, the self-awareness journey that goes along with kind of right. just improving right. your entrepreneurship. Because in the last conversation I had with a very good friend, Winston Bailey, he talked about not only self-awareness, but the idea of recognizing sometimes the self-actualization was the word that he he used. And that's essentially what your mother was allowing you to do, which right. is just be yourself, be free, right. and right. don't be encumbered by, you know, what society... By these expectations. 
yeah. or what you believe society expectations were. Right, right. And the Sorry. reason I think that's a really important distinction, Dede, is because nobody's really paying attention to us. Everybody's worried exactly. about their own hustle, right? Exactly. If you really right. think about it, think about how many times you've left a conversation left a very good friend and they've told you about a work situation or a business situation and you spend time after you leave them ruminating on it. It almost never happens. Like the minute you leave, you start thinking about, okay, what have I got to do? You know what I mean? So we often think that the world is watching us and putting pressure, but nobody's really paying attention, which is another thing that I realize you might as well do you because <laughs> nobody's paying attention anyway. So just another, you know, uh, clarification, but, so when did the, the paths meet where your mother's words finally caught up with kind of realizing that you were going the wrong road in terms of corporate and the light bulb turning on? I would say in my second year of my MBA program, I, the first year of the MBA program, your whole goal is to get the internship in between year one and year two. I did that really well. I've got the three most competitive internship offers that anybody in our cohort got, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the National Basketball Association, National Basketball Africa. And then I went to Group Endome to work in Ghana. That went real smooth. So at that time, I was like, real, like, I could do whatever. You know, it was just like, this corporate thing ain't nothing. But then second year of the MBA program, you're doing your full-time interviews. You're, you're, you're interviewing, auditioning for, like, Google, Amazon, whoever. Coming out of Howard specifically, being an HBCU, the managers through like some bullshit, you know, that I don't think they put people through that they go that go to Wharton. They're grilling you in a way that is like really condescending. It's one thing to challenge me, challenge my ideas, challenge my experience. It's another thing to try to make me feel like shit. You know what I mean? And I felt like that was what was mm -hmm. happening, right? And I was going back to my mentors. I'm like, yo, am I tripping? Am I like overthinking this thing? Or are they really just shitting on me because... For whatever reason, because a lot of my mentors at Howard, they were, you know, managers, they interviewed. And they're like, a lot of times the strategy I would take is just be tough and just grill, grill you. I'm like, they're not even grilling me about my experience or grilling me as a person. That's how I felt. But nobody could give me a precise answer that, no, this isn't this isn't racism. This isn't oppression. This is just strategy. They're like, it could be either or. I'm like, which one is it? Nobody could say it's this or it's that. And I was like, well, you know, if that's what the experience is going to be like. That's when they came to me. It's like, I don't even want to be in that environment. You know what I mean? Not that I couldn't take it. Not that I couldn't like excel in it. It's just like, why, why do that? Because going, having got walked the corridors that we've walked, we know that there are lots of talented people, you know, that are more skilled than us that walk down those hallways and were right, not right, successful. Right. The, uh, like my mentor told me, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants. That's right. right. And even when you're there, as talented as you are, you're also there kind of at the whim of kind of the corporation, right? Like whatever right. They, they choose to be. And so the question always has been, to, you know, at least in my mind, when you're facing those questions is if you recognize that there is that bias, how valuable is the experience that you're looking for to deliberately overlook the bias that you're encountering in that moment? That to me is the calculus that I think all of us eventually make, especially because we do encounter that bias when we're interviewing for those roles. And yeah. we have to decide, is it going to be worth making the 150, 200? And right. I'm going to let you know that comment slide by and not really be principled about it? Right. Or was right. it so cumulative that I just get like, I right, look, I love the 200, but that was just insulting. You got to uh, realize a couple of things, right? 
Talk to me. I, first of all, I had already came through the Ivy League, right, where I encountered that microaggressions all the time. And I, I challenged them in real time every time. And I exceeded. I graduated at the top of my class. I excelled. So it was like, I know I can thrive in this environment, but I don't want to put myself in that environment because one of the things I learned was a lot of times we see the value in the institution where they don't reciprocate that value in us. Hmm. So it was just like, I started to find my intrinsic value. I started to understand like, okay, my peers think I got the job at Amazon or Google or IBM. That's the value. No, I'm the value. You're actually the value for them more so than they are to you. When I started realizing that, then the other part you have to realize is I was already making money before in my life. Not as much as uh, you make post MBA, but I wasn't broke when I came into the MBA situation or I had good life experiences, right? So it was just like, okay, 200, 150, 180, that's cool. But if my intrinsic value is what I evaluated to actually be, I'm going to pass that, you know, in the first five years. I'm going to quadruple that. I'm going to make millions in the first five years. My actual value, what I think it is, is what it is. And then also you got to think if they're willing to pay me this, how much am I making on behalf of them? You know, so then that's what that's what it was for me. It was like, you can't build your dream and their dream at the same time. So that was the ultimate analysis I made. Is like, I'm going to build my dream and not their dream. That's beautiful. And the reason I think this part of the conversation is important for the entrepreneurs that are listening, I ask the question a lot, what gives you license to become an entrepreneur? You know, we're targeting a lot of people who are working for corporate right now and who are thinking about making the leap. And one of the right. considerations might be, what is my self-worth? And then right. what is my self-worth relative to the worth or the value that I'm providing? I, I like to use the, the language intrinsic value instead of self-worth because self-worth is very complicated and messy. But your intrinsic value should, should remain the same no matter what's happening happening externally. Whether you are you know, at the community college or at an Ivy League or at an MBA program, your intrinsic value should be the same throughout all of that. So that's kind of what I've come to. I don't think necessarily my self-worth can fluctuate because depending on like, you know, my confidence level at the time, my depression level at the time, but like my intrinsic value is pretty consistent. And that's what I recognize. I love it. I, I mean, I certainly, there are like three or four layers that I could peel back on that one, but I definitely want to make sure that we pivot to Manette and talk about how you build sure. So you you reach this crossroad, you find out your intrinsic value, chart the path from those thoughts to actually founding Manette. And I know that there was a stop in yeah. that as well. So don't leave that All part. Right. So prior to Howard, I was traveling mostly on the Penn platform because Penn just gave me a ton of money. I said, go travel. So I don't know. I hit three, four, five countries a year when I was at Penn. But every time I was traveling there, I was traveling on the kind of with the lens of an of a anthropologist, kind of like for cultural reasons. So my first trip, when I got to Howard, I said, all right, let me put on my business lens and let me go look at, as a business person, as business opportunities. The first trip I happened to make, which was very incidental, was I went to Pakistan um, with a friend who was one of my best friends who I met at the community college. He's doing like outstanding stuff now, but he's like, hey, I haven't been home in like 12, 13 years. I'm going home for the first time. I know you like to travel. You down to come? So I'm like, heck yeah, let's go. Because at that time, I'm just ready to go get stamps. So on the plane trip there, I told him, I was like, look, I'm, I'm a business student now. I want to travel with intentionally as a business person. And he was on the same thing. He was like, oh, that sounds great. Let's do it. So we spent like two days traveling because, you know, we had to stop in Turkey, 
have a layover. So we spent like two days just talking about traveling with the intentions of business and what we're looking for. So he was on the same accord. I was on the same accord. When we get there, he's able to just introduce me to all different types of business people in Pakistan. To answer your question, just like, you know, when I get to the intrinsic value part and how did that help me make that leap or give me the license to make that leap? I yep. think the answer to that is people in Pakistan saw my value. And they're the ones who called me after I came back because I'm still going through the whole process of being an MBA student, trying to interview, get into corporate. And while I'm going through all of that, the people I met in Pakistan called me. They're like, hey, we need an American distributor for our medical products. Are you interested? You know, we, we, want, we want to work with you. So they saw the value in me. And then that kind of reinforced the intrinsic value framework I was working through at the time. So I know that you're only two years in the game, but if you were teaching a high school class on setting up your international medical distribution business, what would be the kind of, you know, five moves that you would recommend that are kind of a critical component towards setting it up? Get a passport. Awesome. You know, I'm in Philadelphia now and I've been hanging out with like a lot of local people and you'll be surprised how many people never had a passport. And it's hard to imagine international business without ever being nowhere. So that would be number one is just like the value of travel. And then when you travel, you get to see things from a different perspective. 